From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by DataRails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA. We will provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis today. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FPNA. I am thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show, Cole Dixon. Cole, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul. It's great to be here. Good. We're glad. We're really excited to chat with you. So a little bit about Cole. Cole is from Salt Lake City, born and raised. So him and I have a little bit in common there as we were both born and raised in the uh, in Salt Lake City. He earned his bachelor's degree at Westminster College and an MBA from the University of Utah. And uh, kind of interesting fact, we'll share one here now and he'll get to tell us another one later. He's a four-year student athlete in golf there at Westminster. And he's worked in FPNA for the last eight years and he's currently the director of FPNA for Cotopaxi. And uh, I'm really excited about that. I'm a huge fan of Cotopaxi, but I'll let him to get in the podcast, tell us a little bit more about the company, but maybe if you could just go ahead and share a little bit more about your background and how you ended up in FPNA. Absolutely. Yeah. As you mentioned, Paul, I'm, I'm local, uh, born in Salt Lake and, and always stayed around. I fell in love with the surrounding valley and the proximity to outdoor recreation. That's really why I've stayed here from an early age. Uh, my parents have really prioritized instilling that sense of adventure for me. So exploring and, and getting out, I think that includes you know, multiple week transits on a sailboat from the Pacific Northwest up to Alaska. Got the chance to, to sail in the Aegean Sea along that coast of Greece. Looking back on that now, uh, it's really helped shape me as an individual. I've got my own little family and I'm really incredibly grateful that for that dedication that they really instilled the sense of adventure in me. I know my family has been active in scouting. I grew up skiing, golfing, biking, really taking advantage of the world-class slopes, as you know, uh, we have here locally. In you know college, I went to Westminster. I was a business major, and at the time, you know, sophomore age, I wasn't even fully aware of the FP&A field. I was you know heavily involved, looking at a, a CFA, personal finance classes, mm-hmm. entrepreneurship, intern, you know, insurance even caught sure. my eye. So you know, trying to figure out what I was doing still, and you know, in order to graduate with my Bachelor of Arts uh, in Finance from Westminster. I was required to, to get an internship and was lucky enough to have a connection up at Skullcandy at the time. So really one of the most exciting companies around, fun products, actually wearing some Skullcandies right now. You know, Republic at the time, interesting enough, had the highest short ratio in the NASDAQ for a, a moment there, north of 50% or so. Revenue of, of around 300 million, just a really fun brand to work for. Had some of the biggest names in you know, both music and sports that we got to, to see on our, our roster. So had an amazing time up there, right? Got to experience what a public company was like, got, you know, all accounting roles, starting in AR mostly, but was able to, to navigate that into a six-year career at Skullcandy, focusing on FP&A and, and found a, a true mentor there in Jason Hodell, who helped me fall in love with corporate finance, the operational side of the business, and how, as an FP&A individual, we can make an impact on the financial health of an organization. So... You know, after about six years at Skullcandy, I decided to take on a new challenge, which was helping a small organization, uh, you know, less well-known, Cotopaxi. So about three years ago, uh, not quite three, but I joined Cotopaxi in October of 2019. 
Great. Well, no, I appreciate the background. And when you mentioned the sports and the, and the Valley here and also mentioned Greece, you know, I, funny enough, I got to do a trip to Greece and did whitewater rafting in Greece and got to kayak in the Adriatic Sea. So I can relate to some of the things you were mentioning there, some of my adventures. This was a grad school transitioning economies in Eastern Europe. Did a course over there for about 10 days. And so it was a great experience. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. You can't beat the outdoors here. It's a great place if you love the mountains and, you know, for those who, you know, do a lot of skiing and just hiking and all those type of things, it's a great place to be. But kind of getting back to FP&A, you know, so, you know, Skull Candy sounds like a great opportunity to kind of see a public company, you know, learn from one of them here locally, see how FP&A works and kind of cut your teeth. And then, as you mentioned, you joined a small, smaller company called Cotopaxi. So maybe could you tell us a little bit about Cotopaxi? I know they're a Corp B. I don't think a lot of our audience probably even knows what that is. So maybe just talking a little bit about their roots, their background, and how a Corporation B is different from most corporations out there. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, in the simplest form, it's, it's just another type of corporation, right? I think the most popular instances you see are going to be a C-Corp, an LLC. Those are probably the most popular names you're going to recognize. Mm-hmm. Cotopaxi, from our founders, uh, chose to go a different path, and that's uh, becoming a B-Corp, certified as a B-Corp. So, you know, obviously... The, the founders prioritize that. It aligns with their overall mission. And what's unique about that is that we're assessed and scored by a nonprofit organization called B-Lab. So they give us the designation. Um, you know, there are certain benchmarks for social and environmental you know, impact that we have to adhere to. And there's a score as well that, uh, that B-Lab administers. It's a score of up to a 200. And you have to essentially prove that you're making a measurable impact in order to qualify to be considered a B Corp. So the overall, you know, measurable items they look at are social issues, the measurable impact on the environment, maintaining accountability and transparency. So that involves, you know, transparency on charitable giving, your supply chain, your material inputs, your labor practices, how you treat employees, really all of the above. Uh, I think, you know, being a B Corp holds us to a higher standard compared to most organizations. Yeah. And I know there's, you know, a number of companies that people may recognize as B Corps, Patagonia being one, um, Ben and Jerry's is another one that I'm familiar with. And then there's a number of, you know, Maloof's here locally and a lot of other companies. I think Allbirds is one, if I remember right. I believe Warby Parker is in that, in that group and some others that people may recognize. So maybe just a little bit, I know, you know, the B Corp stands for Benefits Corp. You know, Cotopaxi has a pretty clear mission. I know their tagline, if anyone's familiar with the goods, gear for good, you see their shirts that say do good and a real focus on that. But what does that mean? I know they do some things around poverty, you know, sustainability. Do they give up a certain percentage of revenue? You know, how do they, what's the requirements or what is it that they do on, on that front? Could you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. It's core to who we are. Uh, you know, our founding team, Davis in particular and Stefan really started the organization, um, with the belief that outdoor products can get us exploring and make a positive impact on other people's lives. So we're really truly committed that you know, all of our products are from recycled or repurposed materials in factories that you know, prioritize human rights. So at our core, our gear is made in a sustainable and responsible way. So as a consumer who chooses to, to buy that with their, with their dollar, you're supporting a company that you know, prioritizes efforts to, to fund sustainable poverty relief. So really at our, our core, that is what every business decision we make revolves around. Um, not only are we a B Corp, 
we're also really a, a leader in using business as a force for good. So we're a member of a few other organizations. In addition to being a B Corp, we're part of the Outdoor Industry Association, the Pledge for you know 1% for the Planet, Sustainable Apparel Coalition, Fairtrade Certified, as well as Climate Neutral. So we see all of these in tandem with being a B Corp as just a different way to establish what uh, you know a leader for business models should look like, sort of the new practice, right? Looking past the, the bottom line and trying to figure out how we can make a positive impact on the world. Oh, great. And I appreciate that. So maybe can you talk a little bit about how, you know, how working for a company with a mission beyond maximizing shareholder wealth? I mean, I know obviously they have to do that, especially being that they have venture back capital. You know, there's not a lot of firms that have started as a court B with that. I've read quite a bit and listened to some podcasts of Davis. So you know, I know there's a lot there, but how has that impacted your role as a director of FP&A? How has that been different for you to balance, you know, some other purposes beyond what you might typically see in a company? So maybe just talk to a little bit about that. Sure thing. Yeah, I think it's really the typical response for you know public company or, or other organization that the finance team's job and, and most of the other companies' job is to create shareholder value, drive shareholder value, and that's ultimately the end goal for most companies. I think that's Really not the case at Cotapaxi. It's an afterthought, frankly. Uh, we're focused on being that model company that's using their, their products, their value proposition to drive positive social change and ingraining that in every decision we do, you know, from initial concept phase all the way through where a product ends up in a, a customer's hand. So, you know, getting us on the right track, uh, in all of those things and thinking about shareholder values and afterthought, you know, making sure we're being responsible in every single aspect of our business. Shareholder value is going to be a result of those decisions, right? Being a, a beacon for both our customers and other organizations uh, around the globe, proving that we can do business in a sustainable way. So speaking to that and, you know, that mission, how is your job different than maybe it was at, at other companies in FP&A? Has that made your job different or do you feel like your job is really pretty much the same in the sense your finance, your job is to make sure we maximize your returns within some constraints that you have as a business. So maybe talk a little bit about what FP&A is like day to day, you know, as you're doing budgeting and working with the partners in comparison to other, you know, for-profit places that are a little different. I mean, I know they're both for-profit, but you know, your standard corporation, just maybe how, how it's different. Absolutely. You know, I think the FP&A day-to-day job, the overall goals are, are largely the same. Uh, it's going to be Pretty standard, very similar to the industry that I'm in, the outdoor industry, the apparel industry. So I, I think what's different about Cotopaxi is that we do ingrain, you know, our foundation, our, our giving, our efforts to alleviate extreme poverty. That impacts just about everything we do. So it's not only a line on our PL, but it impacts the way we market, the, the way we create products, how we, you know, which companies we choose to do do business with, which customers we choose, et cetera. So you know, more specifically on that 1%, we're dedicated, you know, 1% or more of our revenue goes to our Cotopaxi Foundation. From there, it's distributed in the forms of grant to humanitarian organizations. That includes, you know, some big names, the International Rescue Committee, the IRC, Mercy Corps, United to Beat Malaria. Those are a few biggest partners. And in general, right, I think it's not something you typically see on a company's financials. Uh, last year alone, in 2021, we gave away almost $1.2 million, including mass donations, which, you know, frankly blows us away in terms of the number of people we're able to impact. It's about 1.3 million across the globe. 
And about 2% of total revenue uh, was, was dedicated to help alleviate poverty. So from an FDA standpoint, right, it's not just another line item you have to budget for. It's more comprehensive than that, right? It truly goes into every day-to-day decision is trying to align with our overall objective. No, fascinating. And so, if, you know, I know Cotopax, in addition to be a, you know, Corp B, they've raised that venture capital. I think it was about a year ago, they raised some to expand internationally, you know, so they're obviously a high growth company, really focusing on growing. I know during the pandemic, they opened a number of stores. So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, how it's been being in that high growth environment, especially looking to expand internationally, expanding you know, your retail footprint in addition to your e-commerce? Because I know they started as pretty much digitally native with a flagship store. And now I think you guys have what, about 10, 12 stores. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. So started as a, a direct consumer business, vast majority of the revenue coming from just online sales. We also had a corporate event. Uh, we called it a questable, just a unique marketing tactic to go get in front of colleges and, and other young people who, you know, wanted to get familiar with the brand and understand what we're about. Um, you know, as far as sort of key metrics, right? We're an omni-channel business. We've grown from that, you know, purely digitally native brand and now have an omni-channel approach where we've got a kind of a unique flywheel that all of these various channels and strategies connect to help grow the brand. So in terms of, you know, where we started the, the direct consumer brand, we're focused on the e-commerce side, looking at you know, sessions, the high cost, low cost traffic that we're seeing, what our conversion rate is, how we convert more folks, and really driving top of funnel awareness. You know, Cotopaxi is well known here locally, maybe even the West, but how do we take that next step to grow internationally, as you mentioned, and really across the United States as well? So yeah, focusing on really awareness, uh, that's a key metric for us on the direct consumer side. We own our own retail stores as well. You mentioned we have about 10 stores uh, really across Utah, Washington, Colorado, California, and growing even further uh, as well, looking at, you know, Midwest and East Coast uh, down the line. But in that channel in particular, we're looking at some other key metrics like units per transaction, average order value, average store volume, the inventory turns for a store. And we've also got other business segments, right? I mentioned the omni-channel approach on the B2B side, business to business side of the, the channel strategy. We've got the wholesale team, international customers, and what we call the corporate channel. So, Obviously, on the wholesale side, you're going to think of REI or DSG, Shields, some of those big box stores that we partner with. Uh, international, right? It's more the distributor model. And the corporate channel uh, is you know, more local companies here that like to throw questionable events uh, to improve their employee uh, experience. So on that side, right, some similar metrics looking at uh, sell-through performance, sell-through data, which products are working well, the velocity of those sales, how many doors we have, sales per door, and average order value as well for those channels. Sure. So a lot of, you know, typical, it sounds like kind of retail e-commerce, not just e-commerce, but digital, but different retail metrics, understanding the average order value, you know, what's drawn to the website, you know, each one's a little different, but I would imagine all those metrics are really driving revenue, which you can then figure out what's it, okay, what's our expense profile? What can we spend based on what we can generate in revenue outside of COGS? I know obviously retail, huge cost of goods sold component there, your biggest expense, I would assume, followed by salary, right? And so that makes a lot of sense. There's a, so maybe you had mentioned a Questival. Could you, just for our audience, just so they know, maybe give us a one minute, what is that? And how did that kind of marketing event maybe help drive Cotopaxi? Absolutely. I think it's one of the most creative marketing tactics I've seen deployed, and especially for a young and growing company. 
the basic premise of the event is just a you know small entry fee, which covers your backpack and likely a t-shirt. And that gets you to access into the event. Uh, so you get your Cotabaxi bag, your t-shirt, and we leverage our internal app. So we've got a Questable app where a team logs on and there's various challenges. It's an adventure race. So you're running across all over town doing these activities that are you know mostly involved with doing good in the community. So giving back in some shape or form. Also, getting out of your comfort zone is a big part of it. So it's a great way to, to bond with new people or your existing friends and family and a fantastic way to get our brand image out there and really what our core value proposition is to customers. And that's to do good. Okay. No, I'll just add a little bit to that. I know when they started those, just for audience confessing, they had a couple llamas, which is their their mascot and, you know, college campuses, 24 hour activity where you're doing a combination of outdoor and service activities. So a really creative way to drive lead gen. I think it would have been fascinating to kind of analyze that from a finance standpoint and see, you know, the revenue that it generates. Talk a little bit and I'll, I'll share an example here. I know Cotopaxi does a very good job of tracking its customers. And I know because I've signed up and if I go on the website, I get a text message saying, Hey, we saw you were looking at such and such and pretty regular messages. It seems like you guys have a very good uh, marketing program to connect with your customers. So maybe talk about from a finance standpoint, how you manage the marketing spend, you know, how you look at the metrics and just kind of as a company, how you guys think about that and how you as a FP&A professional ensure that that marketing spend is being maximized. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought this up. I think when we talked metrics earlier, I had skipped over a lot of these, which is customer acquisition costs. Both, both acquisition and retention costs and just cost to, to reach other, you know, thousands of other potential customers. So how we manage it at Cotopaxi, right? It's typically seen as a percentage of revenue. We also track, you know, high cost and low cost sessions. So, you know, certain platforms like Facebook or other types of social media are typically higher cost as whereas a lower cost would be a questable event, uh, an email or an SMS text message a little lower geared to somebody who's already familiar with the brand, where we see the higher costs is trying to to spread awareness, right? Trying to get in front of people has a lower conversion theoretically, but also is is beneficial in terms of expanding the overall pool. And it is one of the top spends at Codapax. It is for most companies, right? In terms of marketing outside of payroll and COGS, I think marketing is is probably third place. And something we monitor flex up or down significantly. Uh, you know, obviously, as we're a growing brand, it's been a, a massive investment for this year on the customer acquisition side, driving top of funnel growth in order to, you know, obviously drive the, the order count as well. Question for you: What advice would you offer to you know, our audience and people about you know partnering with marketing? Because I know often you know finance and marketing can get at heads because marketing it's very hard to attribute that you know that dollar that was spent actually generated a return where did it come from right because you're omnichannel and doing a lot of different marketing so what advice would you offer to people in fpna about you know one thinking about how you can track things and partner with marketing so you don't run into those kind of loggerhead issues of budget and overspend and you know the challenges and just the difference of how marketing thinks about things and how you know finance thinks about things yeah, absolutely. I think on the finance side, it's incredibly easy to get into that scorekeeping mentality. Uh, month to month, we missed our EBITDA target, we beat our EBITDA target, and influencing your reaction based on that. I think what's worked best for me uh, in partnering with the marketing team 
is to see a, a little bit of a broader horizon, in particular for a brand that's trying to grow our awareness. We're not going to see these investments pay off in the next three to six months. It might be 12 to 18 months. So, you know, on the, on the first side of that, right, I think understanding, you know, the bookings, the, the traffic they're driving, the overall, um, you know, way they're growing the business in terms of total sessions or traffic is incredibly important. And there's value to add to that, right? Even though it didn't actually turn into a transaction, getting in front of people is incredibly important. So I think the best way I've seen partnering with marketing to, to reiterate is not necessarily focusing on, on short-term or past results and having a, a longer-term horizon for your expectations. That makes a lot of sense. I could see that, that you know, long-term horizon and working with them to understand the long-term benefits. We will be right back. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop, breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, Intercompany transactions, now automated and up-to-date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FP&A machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. And now let's get back to our episode. Another question here that I want to get your thoughts on is I know you've been with Cotopaxi for a few years, so you were there during the pandemic. And I know, you know, every company experienced the pandemic differently. But maybe could you talk a little bit of, you know, working for a small kind of startup retail environment where all of a sudden everything was shut down? How as an FPA person you managed through that, what that was like? Maybe just take us a little bit through that experience and how you guys experienced. I know like Amazon, there was explosion of growth. I know, you know. There's probably a mix for you guys. And I think you had some stores and warehouse and you also had your e-commerce channel. So maybe just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously joined Codapax in October of 19. So it was about six months in when this, this all hit and it was a challenge. I, I think um, scenario analysis is an understatement. Uh, just <laughs> iterating over and over again to, to really make sure that we're not making a drastic decision that's going to, you know, inhibit future growth. So a lot of tough challenges. You know, I think um, seeing our retail stores completely shut down, uh, that was one of the, the hardest things we had to do. Obviously, if, if the stores are not open, we can't employ those individuals who we call our retail guides uh, who manage our stores. So that was an incredibly difficult decision. Our own warehouse as well, right? Just new um, standards for, say, practices had to be implemented both at our, our headquarters, our office down there at 74 Main in Salt Lake City, as well as our distribution center. I think on the FP&A side, right, it, it was just... Pulling out all the stops, uh, nothing sacred anymore. Let's see how we can use this as you know a trial 
in order to, to shine a light on areas that we need to improve on and double down on those improvements. So we came out of the pandemic with some great success. And I don't want to understate how tough it was during those times and some decisions had to be made. But we, as a team, made a, a pivot towards mass sales and doing it in a different way than really anyone else out in the industry that I saw is that for every mask we sold, we donated one. So kind of that one-for-one, one, similar to the Bombas or Tom's Shoes type method, um, but in a you know time that people truly needed it, uh, especially people outside of uh, U.S. and, and poverty-stricken regions. So donating masks was a, a huge value proposition for us that we offered to consumers, and they bought in in a big way. So we sort of pivoted from our typical product roadmap and turned those around immediately. Not, not immediately, but just months rather than half mm -hmm. a year or a year, which was a tremendous effort from the team. And it became really one of the top sellers and margin drivers for the business. Uh, you know, not necessarily this year, but more looking 18 to 24 months ago. And the learnings from it have, have been pretty amazing. I, I think the takeaway for me is just the strength in the executive team and the team they've built around them. Uh, the willingness to, to roll up the sleeves when the you know the world's in, in chaos. Uh, the willingness to to commit their their time, their weekends, their nights to walking through all these various scenarios and and helping make the best decision for the company. And looking back in hindsight, we made a lot of good uh, progress that set us up for some some great growth. You no, know, I have I still have a couple of those masks upstairs somewhere. Haven't had hadn't had to wear one for a while, but I remember them doing that. And so you know, kind of speaking, what was the Talk about the executives and learning a lot in a business, doing a lot of scenarios. But what was maybe the one key, kind of from an FP&A standpoint, takeaway from that whole experience, like that you'll take with you, kind of moving forward as you try to be a better FP&A professional? Was there one or two kind of key takeaways for you personally? Yeah, you know, I think it really comes back to the the scenarios, right? Having you know, at at bare minimum, a best case, middle, and worst case scenario, because. That's the, the one thing you can guarantee is that change is constant. No matter what happens, no matter how you know stable you think your business might be, events like this happen where you have to question if you can make the next payroll. You have to question you know certain partnerships and vendors and try to revisit everything. And I think the one major takeaway for me is just modeling cash flow and being you know sensitive to, to changes up or down. Did you guys change the way you modeled cash flow? Had you been doing it all along? Did you do it more often? Or how how did that change for you? Because I imagine that was a real tight time. Absolutely. Yeah. So we did. We did change cash flow. Uh, typically, we do the entire three seven model each quarter. So just quarterly forecasting. Obviously, intra-month, we're working on that next revision. So it's sort of a continual process. Looking at you know rolling twelve months, if not longer, the uh, three to five LTFM uh, year time frame. Mm -hmm. In that in that moment, right, March of twenty twenty through really the summer, uh, it became a daily, if not weekly, exercise where we were creating different scenarios, different models, pulling from here, giving back there. Uh, so it did radically change how we modeled uh, in that short time frame. No, that makes a lot of sense. I can remember doing a lot of those things, not you know so daily, but around cash flow and different things and managing as you know as tightly as we could it was definitely a unique time uh, thank you for for sharing that what would you say for somebody who wants to work in a startup environment you know kind of fpna i know a company has to hit a certain scale before they bring in somebody full-time fpna but what advice would you offer for somebody who wants to work in that type of environment absolutely i think you know 
it doesn't have to be uh, a finance background necessarily. I think you can start practicing FP&A tactics in any really field you're at, whether you're a budget owner who works at marketing or product, or if you're just on the accounting team. I think, you know, back to that that scorekeeping mentality, if you're only looking at past results, it's going to be hard to influence, you know, decision makings going forward. So how do you look forward? How do you add value to team members across the organization? And I think even if you're not on the FP&A track, as any member of a company, if you have that mindset of forward looking, you know, rather than, than backward looking, I think it'll be helpful in starting your career in FBA. Just having that mindset of, you know, how do I add value forward looking, not necessarily just measuring KPIs and looking backwards. I really like how you mentioned looking forward, right? Because that's really what FPA is about. It's helping create value going forward. Accounting takes care of the uh reporting what happened. And obviously we have to analyze it and understand it, but that analysis and understanding of it is to drive it forward. So I think that's really good advice. You know, whatever role you're in, wherever you want to get into FP&A is be able to be forward looking. And so I appreciate that answer there. So, you know, question for you here, as you look back, you know, at your career now, is there one accomplishment that you're most proud of? So if I had you in a job interview and I asked you that question, what would be the answer you'd give me? Yeah, I obviously a lot to, to be proud of. I think one pivotal moment for me in my career was at Skull Candy. I, uh, you know, I, I sort of reached my, my point in my FPA career where I was leading a, a team and had seen some, some dramatic changes happen, right? The sale of a, a company called Astro Gaming, obviously the leverage buyout was a public company and gotten taken off the, the market by a private equity firm. So, a lot of transition. And in that moment, uh, a lot of testing, right? A, a lot of cost-cutting exercise, optimization, right? A, that all business need, right? Focusing on cross margin in particular. In that moment, um, I was sort of a senior analyst, manager of FP&A, had a team of two is all, a director of FP&A above me and the CFO. Had those two individuals leave both within three to six months of each other, leaving me as the sole finance lead uh, for Skull Candy at the time. And I look back at that moment, late nights, Hard work, stress, uh, you know, had a young family as well. And in the moment, I think it felt like I was going through fire. I look back at it now thinking about that was a pivotal moment for me to prove out that I love FPA work. I love corporate finance. And, you know, I think the impact you can have in this role is so amazing. And part of the, the, you know, function I love the most, right, is your ability to, to be important to the company, have your hands in all decision making processes and truly add value to those respective team members. I like that answer. And it sounds like you, you know, you thrived as best you could in what's a challenging situation, right? You had to step up and probably do things you hadn't done before, figure out things that you hadn't figured out before as you're being that primary finance contact for the company. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And looking back on it now, right, I think that helped tailor how I approached Cotopaxi. Obviously was the first FP&A team member hired there, was, you know, essentially a top-down model uh, that was managed by the executives, helped bring on some new practices, right? Implemented an EPM tool, helped turn it into more bottoms-up forecasting, longer-range forecasting, adding some of those nitty-gritty details that are worth spending time on and, and help drive the accuracy of the forecast. No, oh, great. Yeah, I, I could see where that definitely would help and have to build all that out. You had to probably build a lot of process and bring that discipline because the executives, yeah, they're going to they're gonna plan, they're going to forecast, but I'm going to guess it was a little different than when you come in as an FP&A professional and start putting those processes in place. So how did you manage, you know, kind of being new, speaking to that, manage changing things if it had kind of been done by the leadership? Was there a level of kind of sensitivity you had 
around, was there any kind of sense of ownership of, hey, this is how we've done it? Or is it pretty much, hey, you're a new FP&A guy, tell us how this should work? How was that kind of experience? You know, frankly, a, a little bit of both. Uh, came in on established brand, not necessarily very well known across the, the overall country, but had a, you know, an, a brand image that was well perceived uh, across the state of Utah and the West here and some practices in place that were really top of class. I think where I came in and kudos to the executive team, Gary Bowen, the CFO, they hire people across the organization that are experts in their respective field and they enable them to go implement some of these best practices and best tools. So got the sort of, uh, you know, free will from from Gary to go do a lot of these things where I was helping then pass the you know responsibility back onto the budget owner or the sales channel leader uh, to own their respective P&Ls or expenses. Great. Now, it sounds like it. you really, you know, you had a fair amount of free reign and the leadership allowed you to just come in and do what needed to be done. I mean, I'm sure there's always some pushback, but I appreciate that. So as you look back at your career, I'm going to ask one more question related to career here. This is one we've started asking people. It's always interesting to see is, you know, what's one of the biggest career failures? And I use that term loosely because I think those are learning experiences that you have had. Maybe an analysis that went wrong, you know, budget that fell apart. And what did you learn from that experience? What was the takeaway? Absolutely. You know, I think um, the one thing I can point back to was, was during a budget cycle, missing a, a key vendor uh, and, you know, a vendor worth about 750K per year cost to, to Skull Candy at the time. And that was NPD Group. So obviously that, that number is a, a, a guess, but it was a massive uh, miss on the budget side, right? It, it was one fourth of that team's budget or so. And both the budget owner and myself, we missed it. I missed it in plan. Of course, that subscription is not going away. So we had to get it back in the plan and then re, you know, analyze the budget to, to go pull some, some stuff out of that. So some incredibly hard conversations that had to happen, both the ownership of the mistake, right? That's part of the, you know, reconciliation of, look, we missed this. Let's pass that up the chain of command and then being solution oriented, right? I, I think rather than just hide in my cave and wait till somebody notices, being proactive on that issue is what I, I took away most from that experience is that, you know, people mess up, people make mistakes. It's a guarantee that it's going to happen. I, I think it's just, you know, being proactive with communicating it and giving yourself as much time as possible to adapt to that change, whatever it may be. So you have as many levers as possible in your pocket rather than waiting. That's probably the biggest takeaway I learned from that particular experience. I would agree. I mean, you need to be proactive and own it. I still remember one time and I didn't know what was going on. I figured it out, but I had a new boss and he was asking about something in the PL that made no sense. And the guy kept dancing around and giving all these crazy answers. And I come to find out he didn't want to admit something was missed because he'd wor he was worried about some people getting in trouble. And I just turned to him when I figured out, I'm like, just own it. Just tell him what's going on. Like, let's just move on. We'll figure it out. And finally he said, yeah, this is what happened. And guy literally wasn't upset. He was more upset that they danced around it and wouldn't give him a straight answer and was just totally confused. And it was, you know, a good reminder to me when a mistake happens, just own it, say what happened and move on, you know, take ownership for, for your part. You know, don't throw people under the bus. We've all seen that take ownership, but just own it and move on best you can do. Yep. So I think that's, you know, a great learning experience. I've had some of those as well. I think anyone who's been in budget long enough has had those type of mistakes where you're like, I missed that. I mean, we had one year where we messed up the seasonality and we were off by a couple million dollars because we thought we were taking it off a, a low quarter with a no certain number of weeks and it turned out it was the high quarter. And so we built the whole year off that high quarter and it was really the, you know, 
it was wrong. And yeah, that was not a fun one to explain. So I, I can relate. I've been there. I think we all have. So this is a little bit more of a personal question as we come you know, close to the end of our time here. And we like to ask everybody this. So this is a standard question we ask. What is something unique about you that you can share with our audience? So something they wouldn't find out online. Yeah. You know, I, I think we mentioned earlier, I'm a really avid golfer. So I've taken a backseat a little bit on the golf course uh, as I focused on my family and career. But really the more unique part um, and success story of my golfing career is that I've got two hole-in-ones so far in my nice. lifetime. And the unique part about it, right? Obviously, a hole-in-one is, is really rare, but it was with the exact same club and pretty much the exact same distance. So the club being a seven iron and the distance being about 175 yards. Nice. And so speaking of golf, what's your, uh, what's your best score? My best score is uh, down at Sand Hollow Resort there outside of St. George, and it's 200 par. Nice. Yeah. Good score. Anything under par is a great score. So congrats. Thanks. All right. So next question here, we like to ask everyone this, and it's fun to see people's different answers, you know, right? In FP&A, we all use Excel, or we all have. And so what we like to ask is, what is your favorite? It can be Excel formula, kind of function, feature. What is it you like most about Excel? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of ways to go with this question. I think um, just the the general favorite Excel formula involves like a nested if statement, uh, leveraging index and max. Uh, using match are also you know super important for the day to day functions. But you know, Paul, I think there's nothing more satisfying to me than a, a longer if statement that has multiple drivers. And you hit enter, and it works exactly as you expect. I think a, a good example for Codapaxi is our retail stores. So. The retail rent has so many different variations. It can be a percentage of revenue. It can be a, a base, has you know CAM and taxes and, and a lot of different components uh, to it. There can be a, a break-even formula as well. So nailing that if statement that has multiple components of it, I think is my favorite Excel formula. Yeah. When a formula goes right that's complex, it always feels good. So yeah, I can appreciate that. You know, mentioned index match. Obviously, we use those all the time. And those are some great things as well. So that's that's good. I'm glad that uh, you've got them to work for you because I've had a few that have taken some time. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you mean there. Yeah, they take you know, half an hour at least at times. <laughs> yes, I remember I used to do, you know, coding my first job out of MBA. And it's a lot of SQL and you know, you're spending half a day trying to find the error. Right. Of like, okay, why? And it's always something simple. So I can appreciate when they work. That's one of those beautiful moments. So, you know, as you look at FP&A, you look at how it's changed over your career. You know, you look at all the uncertainty we have in the world today and just, you know, more and more data, things constantly changing. What do you see as the biggest challenge for FP&A? And then what do you see as the biggest opportunity for the profession going forward? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think the biggest challenge, and maybe I've mentioned this once or twice, but it's being a valuable team member in any type of decision-making process, right? So not getting siloed on that finance or accounting team, it's branching out even further. So helping marketing evaluate product collabs or helping the product team understand returns and driving insights there and being, you know, a valuable team member, both in the analysis side, but also forward-looking of how do you project those risks to the overall business and and be a part of oh, the overall company, you know, not necessarily just the, the FP&A team, the finance team being a member there, but expanding that reach. I think that's got to be the biggest challenge for an FP&A professional going forward. That makes a lot of sense, expanding that reach and getting that seat at the table, being a part of 
you know, the decision so you can create value. What do you see as the biggest opportunity? Yeah, you know, I think um, similar vein, right, is is branching outside of finance. For me in particular, it was learning all aspects of the, the business for Cotopaxi. So our omni-channel approach that I mentioned, obviously getting a little more familiar with the e-commerce conversion metrics and acquisition costs and all that stuff, being willing to, to dive outside of just financial data, the P&L, the three statements. I think that's the, the big opportunity where you can tailor your skill set to apply for your overall career going forward. Okay, great. No, I appreciate that. So last question here for you, and then we'll uh, wrap up. What advice would you offer to someone starting their career today who wants to work in FP&A? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know, just being willing to reach out and have that FP&A mindset. So even if you're on an accounting team or, or just a you know finance role, being you know willing to have that forward-looking mindset, that growth mindset, understanding the challenges in FPA team, right? Is we're trying to project cash in a forward-looking basis and risks to the business. You can take that approach in really any role you're at today and start to to branch out to folks in the company who you see have influence on that and have key you know metrics they're tracking and try to understand those the best you can. So that's Overall, my advice for somebody who wants to work in FPNA, you're not going to necessarily get an FPNA role out of the shoot. It could be a, a basic AR, AP, analyst level role. But I think having that mindset, showing that you have the the broader you know horizon, that that mindset is going to help you get a career in FPNA. That makes a lot of sense, and I agree. A lot of people may not start their career in FPNA. You may start out, like I said, AR or other areas of the business within finance and work your way up and learn the ropes. So having that right mindset to help you learn, I think is critical. Well, Cole, we appreciate having you on the show today. We appreciate learning a little bit more about Cotopaxi and some of your experience in the outdoor retail industry and working for uh, you know, a B-certified corporation. I think you're the first one we've had on in the outdoor, You know, that primarily has been in the outdoor industry and also has worked for uh, Corp B. So we appreciate you sharing a little bit of that experience. And thanks again for being on the show. Thank you, Paul. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>